Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. If you bought stock in Netflix last year, boy, did you make the right choice. A lot of people are tuning into movies and TV right now to step out just for a moment from the headspace that it is so easy to get into in this pandemic. So I sat down with media critic and writer Josh Larson for a conversation all about movies. Josh is, along with another writer and critic named Adam Kempinar, the co-host of the popular film review podcast, Film Spotting. He's also the host and producer of the Think Christian podcast and author of a new book out by InterVarsity Press called Movies Are Prayers. We had a lot of fun talking about movies. I asked him for some recommendations of what to watch, and we discussed how to watch movies and the pleasures and pitfalls of looking at a film through a theological lens. Also, we talked about how learning to be a better viewer of film can turn into an exercise in virtue and discipline. Now, whether you're a movie nerd or not, and I promise you there are plenty of nerdy moments in this podcast episode, it was a great conversation, and I hope that you enjoy listening in. So you are a deeply formed layperson, is is what I would call you, who grew up <laughs> okay, with. I'll take it. Yeah, and you grew up with you grew up with an integration in your life between faith and the arts, which does seem, I think, so rare um, with the culture wars going on in the '80s and the '90s, and you see more that integration culturally speaking, in Catholic contexts, mm-hmm. Anglican contexts, liturgical, explicitly liturgical contexts. So that's beautiful. And in some ways, remarkable that that happened for you. Now, I have to confess something. Um, within a few months, a couple years ago, I started listening to film spotting. And within a few months, 
you gave yourself away for me in two ways. First of all, (laughs) you're totally Midwestern. You are so from the Midwest. But then secondly, I started suspecting that you were a Christian. And this was because you were using vocabulary for the spiritual. Not that someone who's not a person of faith couldn't use this vocabulary. Specifically, it was the vocabulary of the demonic. Mm. And what struck me is your um, discernment and the way that your I thought your discernments were accurate uh, in terms of perceiving something, an influence, a feeling in a film, a choice a character might make, uh, the character of a particular character as being demonic. Interesting. And I thought, uh, I wonder if this guy sounds like <laughs> sounds like this guy's been to church at some point. I wonder what's going on there. I like that you use the phrase "gave yourself away" <laughs> because. <laughs> It makes it sound like I was trying to be a secret agent, which, <laughs> you know, wasn't really the case. The way that I've always looked at this um, is really in terms of audience. But when you do speak to spiritual themes, whether it's on Think Christian, Film Spotting, wherever it may be, you're speaking to things that everyone is looking for. You're you're speaking to things that have a relationship to the deepest um, hungers and expressions of human life. That brings me to a question about the first movie. What is the first movie that you saw and thought, wait a second, this is not just giving me a great feeling or catharsis or making me think movies have something to do with God. Mm. Yeah. Well, what you were saying just before, you know, does really bring bring me to the the book because that's the primary movies are prayers. That's the primary understanding of the book is that we're all asking similar questions, um, wondering about similar things, have this spiritual impulse within us, and exploring kind of how movies um, can function in that way, whether they were intended to or not. So for me, it kind of goes back to, to answer your question, it kind of goes back to that, um, the background and, and the the way I was raised. It wasn't like a light bulb moment because film and art in general and faith were, were seen as being able to be held together. It was more of a gradual dawning, and I guess I should say a refining of how in particular and how specifically that might be true. So it wasn't like I held them in conflict and then I saw one movie and it was like, oh, this is it. Uh, it was more where I gradually became aware of the ways movies could be interconnected with my faith. Now, I mentioned how I worked in mainstream media for you know a couple decades, first, first 20 years or so of my career, and that kind of kept things apart necessarily. But I would on occasion write for like a denominational magazine and then specifically think about how do I bring a faith perspective to film? And there weren't a lot of models for that, even when I was in college and and specifically trying to do that. It was mostly kind of policing movies and counting swear words, which I wasn't really interested in. So I kind of I kind of fumbled with how to do, quote unquote, Christian film criticism for a long time. And I'll be honest, when I joined Think Christian as editor and had the chance to really make that part of my daily work. I fumbled there too because I was still figuring it out and it's still a very difficult thing to do. Um, I, I probably still on occasion fumble and get it wrong where I stretch um, you know, a spiritual truth and try to apply it to a film where it doesn't belong or vice versa. Um, so I think it's just been a continual process of um, 
not doing that, learning when not to do that, and recognizing when the two things do naturally come together in a way that's worth writing about. Um, so, you know, there are some films where they just give it to you on a silver platter, like um, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, which came out in 2011. Um, fortuitously, when when I um, took the, the Christian job and it could be like, okay, this is deeply theologically rich. It's also considered an artistic, like critics movie. So let's tease out how those two things sit together. And, you know, there have been other movies along the way, but um, eventually that that allows me to find a way to write about, you know, the, the Fast and the Furious series from a theological perspective, which is a little bit more of a stretch, but but I feel like you can still do that. My mother would really love to read that book, by the way. She is a, a pastor's mm. wife. And if you ever want to write a book about the theology behind the Fast and the Furious, she's a, a Vin Diesel fan. <laughs> And a pious it. pastor's wife both go together. Wow. It is a deep paradox, but it is Man. real. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know if I could get a book out of it, but I, I did write about um, Furious 7 on Think <laughs> okay. Christian. She can track that article down and, and see if, that, if she likes that. In your calling, I would describe what you are doing as a calling let's say a vocation. Mm. This is a vocation for you. And you are watching films, talking about films, writing about films for a living. I see two potential temptations here um, as Christians who think that movies matter in some way, however clear we might be about why. The first is the temptation to indulge ourselves and just consume a lot of media, which is okay in certain doses, but that can be an indulgence. And then on the other hand, using films as instruments um, without understanding them. So the first is an indulgence of pleasure. And the second is a a disordered way of using films. And and you're wanting to, some people use scripture this way, where you're essentially proof texting by using films to do certain things. I read popular books in which I wondered if this proof texting wasn't happening, in which the people who sometimes were regarded in your field um, were finding spiritual themes where there weren't necessarily um, really profound ones there. How has learning to be a better film critic, a better film viewer, discipled you and trained you in virtue to avoid the kinds of things that would lead to these extremes. You know, you're talking about, in some ways, benign pleasure, <laughs> movies that are, um, you know, just feel good stuff and just wanting to to lose yourself in that. Um, but it can go the other way, too. It can be indulging in in movies that may not good, be good for you in your personal faith walk. And so in both cases, I think it's helpful to um, keep in mind discernment. And the the one thing I would emphasize about discernment, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast we could do. But in, to this point in particular, is that it's best done in community. So we can be discerning on our own in private, and we should strive to be, but we also often fool ourselves because we want to fool ourselves that we're being discerning. So it's good to have either a a movie going friend or a partner or a spouse, or this is why I love to see church movie groups um, where people can watch things that are difficult or challenging, or in your example, maybe um, 
too lightweight <laughs> and, and kind of be someone who can say to you, why are you watching this? What's the, um, what's the takeaway from it? How is it feeding you? Um, how is it maybe not feeding you? So that's how I'd answer the first part, I think. Um, and then as far as, you know, you ended by saying, how is learning to do film criticism better formed you? I think that is absolutely key to this um, stretching things idea you're talking about, the proof texting of a movie, just using it as a sermon illustration. And this is a thing that I worry about that I still fumble through from time to time. Um, what I've tried to do, and I really try to do this in the book, um, is while I'm making these theological reflections or observations about a movie, is make sure I make my case, my connections by using the aesthetic details of the film at hand. So not just using the theme, not just using the narrative plot points, but using talking about the cinematography, talking about the acting, uh, talking about costume design. And if I can find theological resonance in all of those elements, for one thing, it's good film criticism to talk about that stuff, to talk about the aesthetics, not just the plot. Um, but for another thing, you're strengthening your argument that there is theological resonance there because it's built into the very fiber of the film. In Christian theology, in I'm thinking particularly of Catholic theology and, and what Anglican theology derives from Catholic theology, there is this idea that the vision of God is to see things exactly as they are in their concrete details, that God is not living in a fantasy world and that those who follow God are also not following um, part of what we mean by following our own desires is to, rather than attending to things as they are, attending to what we wish they were, what we wish was there. So what I'm hearing in part of this, a big, I would call it a discipleship piece, is uh, in, in learning how to view a film is similar advice that someone might give, like a spiritual director in learning to pray or a psychologist in learning to relate better to your spouse or to your friends is to see them as they are and try to take in the reality of the situation um, because that is where God shows up. It's not in a fantasy world. It's not in things as we wish that they were. Yeah. I think the the phrase that I use uh, to to remind myself of this is let the movie speak first. I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Um, and it, that doesn't mean that every movie is a puzzle and our job is to figure out the message, the whatever that may be, um, whether it's the filmmaker's message or, or the message you want to find there. But just let the movie speak first and let those other elements that I've been talking about, those aesthetic elements, do their work on you and start percolating those ideas for you rather than kind of coming in and bringing your own um, theory or theme or theological connection that you want to make to a film. Um, save that and let the movie speak and see if there's some sort of connection there out of what you hear. Did you know that the first issue of The Living Church magazine came out in 1878? It invited a small group of Midwestern American readers to be active, informed Christians, influencing their local communities and encouraging the highest possible standards in church teaching, preaching, music, art, 
If you're not a subscriber, consider it. Subscription rates start at $9.95 a year for digital and about $5 an issue for a traditional magazine. You can subscribe for our next issue at livingchurch.org and just click the subscribe tab. So let's talk a little bit about the way that a movie is shaped in connection with your book. The title of your book is Movies Are Prayers. Not movies are like prayers. Movies might make you pray, but movies are prayers, which I think is a bold title. And I think you mean it. And I'm as I think about prayer, prayer is both a liturgical act and a spontaneous act. It's directed to something larger than ourselves in both cases. Um, example of spontaneous is like your foxhole prayer, but then it's also a formalized act. And these forms take certain shapes and rhythms over time. Um, we have confession, praise, intercessions, adorations, asking for what we need, kneeling, standing, lifting our hands. And then these acts gather around and attach to certain physical spaces and objects that then become means of prayer. Chapels, icons, candles, kneelers, books. In a Christian sense, inherited from Israel's worship, we believe that these forms are taken up by God, who then gives them back to us through divine inspiration, so that we, the natural human impulse to worship the forms we create around it, when offered to God, God sends them back in a revelatory way so that we might know and obey and love the one true God through them. And this is a liturgy. Now, here's my question. Mm-hmm. How do you see this human need to worship, the intuitive and the concrete structural pieces, overlapping with what a film is and in the specific form that it takes? In other words, if movies are prayers, how are they so? Not just in what they say, but in how they are shaped. Yeah, I'll start with the caveat that not every movie is a prayer. So it is a bold title, but I, I could have been bolder and said all movies are prayers. <laughs> and I, I didn't quite want to go that far, but I did want to make the statement, the claim as much as it is, precisely because of what you described, that spontaneous act element of prayer. So the foundational understanding um, of the book that I would argue is that we all pray and um, yeah, the atheist in a foxhole is an example of that. It's also the uh, atheist who is on a hike in the Grand Canyon and comes to just an overwhelming expanse of creation's beauty and expresses gratitude. Um, you know, that person would not claim to be directing their gratitude at any specific being. But as Christians, uh, we believe God hears the gratitude nevertheless. And once God hears um, what has been expressed, it's a prayer. So there's that wide net element that um, that you're referencing as a spontaneous act that kind of gives me, you know, opens the door for me to say, if that's true, then it's also true of the people who are beyond, behind these films, the actual artists. When, again, not every movie that they're making is going to function as a prayer, but in some ways, even beyond their intentions, um, when they are expressing something artistically, when they're wondering, you know, what is this place I found myself in? Why am I here? Uh, Those are prayers. And so their movies can be read that way. So that's one level. And then the other is the liturgical act that you're talking about. I think that's where the aesthetics do come in and the more specific theology comes in. So I can have a chapter on, you know, um, prayers as how movies can be different sorts of prayers in terms of yearning. That's a very base level yearning that all of humans have 
to to seek the divine, as you said, or um, just to ask these existential questions. But then you have very specific um, ways movies can be prayers uh, as prayers of obedience. And there's a very Christian understanding of what obedience means, you know, not not in order to earn something, but as an act of thanks for what we've been given. Um, and in looking at movies that way, you're specifically looking them at, at them and how they f- have a liturgical function that's rooted specifically in Christian theology. So the book kind of operates on both of those levels. Um, some take the broader view, the spontaneous view of prayer, and some take the liturgical view. Hmm. I'm also hearing in this that there is a common grace to be explored, and common grace is just describing the way that the Holy Spirit works on, in, and through all of God's creatures uh, in one way or another. Absolutely. I think common grace, and I, you're, you're dead on in bringing that up, is the uniting, uniting thing of all art forms is that whatever artist, whatever medium an artist is working in, uh, and this is one of the ideas, you know, borrowed from the Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, um, Many Christians believe those artists have been imbued by God's common grace with their gifts. Those are gifts from God, the abilities they have, the talents they have, the eyes they have to see the world this way. Um, now, we're fallen beings, so how they enact those gifts, it's going to get messy, right? Even even the stuff that we might, the movies we might identify as a form of prayer in some way, there may be some things in there that uh, are absolutely not um, something you describe as a prayer, but still that common grace is there. And because it's there, because God has imbued people with these gifts, um, you know, you can make the argument that his truth can be found in the art that they make. Again, beyond potentially their intent. Um, This has to do with another, you know, sort of reformed emphasis, which is God's sovereignty. God is in all things and sovereign over all things. And so um, we, we believe that works of art that aren't explicitly Christian can still perhaps have the potential to carry his truth. You know, the the famous Kuiper quote um, that um, that is used a lot is about Christ proclaiming all of creation to be mine. You know, all things are mine. And that's not a conquering phrase. That's an acknowledgement that um, Christ is sovereign over all, and we can um, we can find the truth about him and God in, in all sorts of art, in surprising places. Um, and so those were sort of um, foundational principles that allowed me to even move forward on an idea like movies, not just Christian movies, being forms of prayer. I asked you in an email whether you could think of four movies that folks could watch to really see some of these connections that we've been talking about between um, a life of faith, uh, a deep life of faith, or expressions of um, yearning for God and film. And I asked you for one for each MPAA rating, G, PG, PG-13, and R, depending on where everyone is in their movie viewing uh, journey and uh, and preferences and discernment process. Yeah, you gave me a top four assignment. We do top five lists on film spotting all the time. So yes. <laughs> you gave me extra homework this week with the top four, but th- this was fun. All right, so at the G level is My Neighbor Totoro, Japanese animated film from 1988. Yes, I, I baked for my friend's 30th birthday. I baked her a three-dimensional um, Totoro cake. This I will never do this again in my life. It was a wow. multiple-day process. 
I was extremely proud of myself. And yes, I am bragging. Um, so this movie, impressive. yes, it was impressive. So this movie has had deep significance for me and for um, several of my friends who are theologically trained uh, people in their mid to late 30s. So tell me, um, why is Totoro significant for this list? Totoro is about two girls who move with their father to a home in the country. That way they can be near their mother. She's sick in a nearby hospital. So these two little girls, they kind of push back against their family's sadness the way a lot of kids do, right? They play. Even if things are rough, we're seeing this right now in the midst of a pandemic. Um, kids still play. And in their play, these two little girls play, I saw Totoro as this prayer of joy. Um, it, their play kind of melds with fantasy and imagination, and that's especially the case after they meet the title creature who's, I don't know what Totoro is, kind of a giant, fluffy feline bear, I guess you could say, but just you know, a delightful creature, and Totoro brings these girls joy. They plant acorns together. They just sit in trees. They ride in one of the weirder sequences. They ride in a cat bus, and we'll just leave listeners who haven't seen My Neighbor Totoro to discover what a cat bus is. Along the way, they I think Totoro just instructs them, these little girls, in how to cultivate joy, even amidst sadness. And it really reminded me, um, it was reminiscent to me of something like Christian hope, which is one way you could describe Christian hope is the knowledge that all can be endured because one day our joy will be complete. And my neighbor Totoro is, you know, that may be make it sound sappy, but it's more nuanced than that. It's more complicated than that. It really acknowledges this family's um, pain, yet it also acknowledges that joy will one day win out, I think. Um, and in that way, I, it just really echoes for me as this prayer of joy. Totoro is about joy. And then your next movie for PG is Star Wars A New Hope. Why that one? Yeah, that one I I see more. I see all the Star Wars films really as prayers of obedience, even going back to this 77 first one. Because you have you have a faithful group here, right? The Jedi, and they're faithful in that they fully submit to the ways of the mysterious force, which in Star Wars, that's what governs the whole universe. And then you have this other group, the disobedient, who try to use the force for their own self-glorifying purposes. So you can kind of go through the Star Wars films and even trace this in gestures of, of the way some characters express obedience and then ask yourself, what are they expressing obedience towards? Think about all the master language that's in Star Wars, right? Um, and that brings to mind Jesus warning in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. So that gets to the central conflict of the series, um, serving the force, but serving it for your own ends. That's that's never going to work. And maybe one quick example I can give comes from Empire Strikes Back, actually, the second film, Luke submitting to Yoda's training there um, on Dagobah. That's just even carrying Yoda on his back, you know, um, definitely uh, a gesture of submission. Um, for submitting to something not just for your own good or ability to conquest. And Empire Strikes Back is also PG. So there, there's two PG ones for you, the first Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. It's interesting. I'm a big Star Wars fan, have been since middle school. It's interesting to me that my own spiritual awakening, where I started to be to intentionally do things like go to youth conferences with a purpose and not just because it was automatic or mm. to read scripture and really wonder what it meant or what does God have to say to me? What is Jesus wanting of me? That this happened in my life at the same time I started watching and becoming a huge fan 
of the at least um, episodes four, five, and six. Interesting. And I would fantasize about being a Jedi, probably until I was a little too old to be doing that. <laughs> but fortunately, I had nerdy enough friends, deeply nerdy, that... Um, good, good. Yes. No, there was no judgment. In, indeed, there was encouragement, Josh, um, to indulge in these fantasies. But there was something substantial about them because I felt that there was some connection with my Christian faith, that this wasn't mm. um, some completely different world, but somehow they were speaking to one another. Yeah, I think that's, you know, they're often called myths, right? The Star Wars films. Mm. And that's because I think they do tap into these deep mythological um, yearnings that people have, which, of course, you know, Christianity offers um, a specific response to. So I think all is that there, all of that is there. I think Christian, we we put out an ebook, a theology of Star Wars, because it's so rich with these sorts of illusions, and we cover all nine films from a bunch of different angles. So yeah, there that's a deeply theological franchise, I'd argue. Ah, now see, I was wondering what you were going to do with your theology of obedience once you got to episodes eight and nine, but perhaps that's a different conversation. Yes. I just saw you know lasers coming out and the whole thing like <laughs> blowing up in space. Shattered fragments of your theory yeah, going everywhere silently in the vacuum may not hold up through for every installment, but uh, but it's there for most. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now, third on your list is Tree of Life, and I almost want a moment of silence for this movie. There we go. That's good. Um, <laughs> and the reason is it's um, such a beautiful film. And I will tell you that Tree of Life took me three viewings to enjoy. And on the third viewing, it clicked. The other shoe dropped. And I've been a Malik fan ever since. But can you talk a little bit about why this movie's on the list and what it might require to give it a good viewing? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the quote unquote art film. This is, um, it's beautiful and gorgeous. And the imagery I would like to think can sustain any viewing for anyone. But this is also incredibly deeply thoughtful and theological and not in an obvious way. So if you want to wrestle with this movie, it's going to wrestle you back. It's not going to give you the answers. And I think that's part of the challenge. It's also um, not a traditional narrative at the root of it is this fictional memoir. I think you could call from Terrence Malick about growing up um, in a family of three boys in 1950s, Texas. In some ways it's a coming of age story. It's got a big star, Brad Pitt as the father of this family, but it also jumps back and forth in time um, to one of the boys as an adult kind of wandering around, wondering about his past. It goes backwards all the way to the beginning of the universe in one amazing sequence. And that's going to lose some viewers who want a straight narrative, a straight story. But if you're willing to go with that, you'll slowly start to understand how this family's experience, which in some ways is very common, um, sits within a cosmic context and a God's context, really. Um, and I think it's it's that creation sequence in the movie that does spend, oh, I don't know, 12 to 13 minutes just with these gorgeous nature shots um, as creation unfolds over eons. Watching that, it kind of made – it felt like Genesis was washing over me. And the movie brought scripture alive in a way I had not experienced before, those passages in Genesis. 
Um, and it functioned for me as a prayer of praise, just gratitude, this feeling of gratitude and awe for the beauty and immensity of creation. That's not the only thing going on in the tree of life, but that's one thing that um, it spoke to me about. There's in a lot of ways, it's a parallel for the story of Job. Um, I won't get into that right now, but yeah, this is, I can see why it might be a challenging film for some, um, but it's also incredibly rewarding if you want to do a little bit of that work yourself. Sometimes when you're in a certain mood, it's maybe a little too much and you're like, all right, I need to watch YouTube videos of SNL sketches. I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> right, but right. Try taking, after you've watched a Malik film, a solitary walk in the evening and not imagine yourself in one of his movies. But because you're imagining that, what you're really doing is putting yourself in... Um, you're, you're realizing that your life is cosmic and has cosmic proportions and that in every moment, God is present with you and speaking and desiring you. And at their, I think at their best, that's absolutely what they do. He had a new one. His latest came out last year, A Hidden Life, which um, as you were ma- describing the experience that way, it's, it's very similar to my experience with that film too. Mm-hmm. Well, now we come to a movie which is rated R, um, and for very good reason. I myself saw this when I was in seminary, the Office of Black Church Studies very generously rented out an entire theater and invited anybody to come who wanted to go watch this movie and then have a discussion. Uh, And discussion afterward, as you can imagine, was very difficult. Um, Why did you, I mean, we've got joy, we've got hope, we've got a movie that steeps you in prayer. And then we have this movie that... um, puts you in a very grueling way in the life of a slave in the American South. Why did you pick this? Well, in addition to those things you talked about, you know, those are all parts of the human experience, but so is lament. Uh, and, and lament, particularly as a biblical term, is a crucial part of the Christian experience. So yeah, 12 Years a Slave, a 2013 Best Picture winner, as I mentioned, is this, this lamentable story from director Steve McQueen. It's a true life tale about a free African-American Solomon Northup who was kidnapped in 1850s New York and enslaved on a plantation in Louisiana. And so it's easy to understand from that plot synopsis how this story functions as a prayer of lament. And really quickly, there's just one remarkable scene I'd point to. This is at the burial on the plantation of an enslaved man that involves the Negro spiritual Roll Jordan Roll and how some of the folks there begin singing that, how Solomon as this, you know, newcomer outsider who doesn't believe he deserves, not that anyone deserves to be there, but he feels particularly affronted that this has happened to him. So he resists this song a little bit and his place in this community and the way that scene develops just really captures a truly biblical sense of lament, and which is not just complaint. Um, but giving your despair over to God. It's a giving up of that despair in the hopes that he'll have a response, that God will have a response. So that scene in particular, and really 12 Years a Slave overall, um, you're right, it's difficult, but prayers of lament are difficult. Um, and so I'm I'm grateful that we have movies that are um, ambitious and daring enough to to explore that area of human experience as well. There are some moments in this movie where, you're seeing the suffering of these people uh, who are enslaved on this plantation on a couple of different plantations. And there are times when the camera will just not look away and there's a sustained moment of suffering. And you keep thinking, at least I kept thinking, okay, there's, it's, it's going to pan away. It's going to pan away. It's going to pan away. 
And in watching the movie, I couldn't, I couldn't, my eyes couldn't stay the way that the eye of the camera stayed. Yeah. Which um, is another, maybe that's the particular vocation of filmmaking. Uh, One of the things that makes it different from other artistic vocations is that what you do with the lens says something about how things should be or are capable of being seen. And there is an eye that never looks away. And the Psalms tell us that that is the Lord's eye, that his eye sustains not only on our rejoicing, our joy, uh, giving us hope, leading us into prayer, into ecstasy, into union with him, but sustains on our suffering. And when everyone else looks away, there's there's one set of eyes left, and that is um, the eyes of God embodied in the eyes of Christ. And you're you're you know the reason I love that sort of comparison is it is rooted it is rooted in the exact technique the filmmaking technique you know the aesthetics something else that happens in that film is how often characters look back at that camera mm. and refuse to look away which is you know discomforting for the viewer in a completely different way but also I think appropriate in in forcing us to see, um, to see this uh, something that uh, we can then turn over as lament. And that's doing exactly what African-American spirituals are doing. You mentioned, you mentioned the Negro spiritual that they sing at the burial site is they're saying in those spirituals, people are saying, let us just tell you now that we know that God sees us. Mm. So they're looking back at the camera in a sense and not looking away and saying, we want you to know that God sees us, that we recognize yeah. that we are seen. And um, we need that so deeply. Thank you, Josh, for being here with me. There are some fun things in there. And I'm so glad that you get to do for a living what you love. That's such a blessing. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Amber. This was a great conversation. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.